How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 177. Congratulations, Zeke. On what? On 177 episodes. Thank you. I we, knew which number we don't, this was. We don't always congratulate each other or ourselves, but... That would get quite annoying, wouldn't it? Celebrating every every single episode. I guess. I guess you can't do it all the time. Yeah. But then you can't only do it for the milestones as well. No, this is very true. Yeah, you can't just do it for 150, 200... 1,000. Are you ready for a 1,000 episodes, Zeke? How old would we be? We'd be at least 35, 36? I don't know. Well, I'm 25 this week. You actually just reminded me of that. Yes. Yes, you are. Yeah. Because we, we air next week, you will be a quarter of a century old. Oh, God. And this podcast feels like it's a quarter of a century old. Well, it will be around for two decades, so this is how it works. How are you, Jake? Oh, no, you brought that back. I'm good, Zeke. I'm good. That's a classic. That's a, that is an old school. I know. It's, it's almost as old as um, a directorial debut. <laughs> Those are some old school cinema side check quotes. Yeah, it's for the OGs. I know, exactly. OG fans of the show. They go all the way back. But I've been, I've been all right. I've yeah. taking a bit of time off. Just... Uh, Doing stuff. My boss got the uh, the COVIDs. Oh no! So I've I haven't been able to work for a few days, but that's okay. It's okay. Lasted pretty long before. Uh, yeah, yeah. It. At this point, well, you you haven't got it yet. I don't think so. Touch wood. No. <laughs> don't think so. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, you know, a lot of people maybe they they don't even get symptoms and they've had it. I think can you? I think you can get a blood test to find if you've ever had it in the past. Yeah, I'm sure you can. Like, yeah, that would that would actually be pretty handy. I'm sure that's a thing. I'm sure that is, but I don't know. But Zeke, I have more important questions to ask you than about the health and safety regulations of our society. That's uh. I want to learn more about Planet of the Apes, the film of the week. Yes, that we're talking about, 1968, of course. Um, Zeke, do you have any fun facts for me? About yeah, the film? I do actually. Oh, um, so this obviously real simple, <laughs> nice and easy one. Uh, this was actually based off a a novel, mm. um, originally named uh, I think it was the Planet of the Monkeys. Oh, rather okay. Than, and it was based off. Uh, I've got to get the writer's name of the. Uh, here we go. Yeah, I didn't write it down myself. Um, Not important enough for the Jake notes. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, no, we respect. He's a French writer. Oh. Um, Should be called Planet of the French Apes. Pierre Boulle Bowl in 1963. Probably why I didn't write it down. And (laughs) um, yeah, so it's the Planet of the Monkeys, and it was based around him going to a zoo at some point and studying the behavior of gorillas' interaction with humanity, and obviously Mm. that dynamic between uh, psychological dynamic between the apes studying the humans and the humans studying the apes, which led to this. Um, more moralistic tale um, in the original novel and then was obviously translated to screen five years later. Mm. Yeah, a bit of a quick turnaround. Yes, well, the the funny thing is the rights to the film were actually acquired before the book book had even been published. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like that's more common nowadays, is jump, not necessarily for books, but like articles... Um, real life stories, you know, those kind. Of, I think like that's pretty common now is is to get the rights ridiculously mm-hmm. early. But 
That's interesting. I did not realize that about Planet of the Apes. Well, it's funny because my fun fact ties into the adaptation side of it with, of course, director Franklin J. Uh, Schaffner, who came aboard as director. And one of the main things that he pretty much decided on the spot or immediately was to change the idea of the ape society as something that originally was more futuristic mm-hmm. or was portrayed more in a futuristic, maybe dystopian way um, and made it a bit more primal or more of a primitive thing which Most obviously do with budget cuts well yeah it obviously reduces the cost of it but from a f- more thematic point of view i actually think that's very smart because there's a lot re-watching this film i think the last time i watched it was maybe 2017 because i remember sending like um clips of it to a friend and like making jokes about something so that was i think that was first year uni but what i really appreciated this m- most recent rewatch was what it says about almost like a timeline, like almost a predetermined timeline of societal discoveries and advancements and um, the fact that it is primitive, or at least it looks primitive and a lot of the discoveries haven't been made yet, how it comments on that cyclical... Mm. But, but you know, we'll get into that. We'll get into to that. See. Absolutely. I'm not having a stroke, I swear. Jake, it's fair to say <laughs> that this film may be on the poster behind me. I don't know if you checked prior. I did check, yes. Well, I will happily say that it will definitely be behind... It is, it is <laughs> look out the planet of the apes is behind you like <laughs> yes uh, it is on the poster of 1100 films you must watch and would it be at, on at your least. personal poster absolutely it would be i Mine love this too. film yeah no it's, it's a classic it's a classic and it says so much and i'm very happy that it's on the poster what was it last week that wasn't on the poster uh, no sorry star wars was um top gun was top gun not on the poster yes top gun was not yeah that that was strange a lot of strange um yeah anyway but that's why we do it that's why we do this segment because sometimes you are surprised by the answers absolutely it's the green miles should be on the poster but it doesn't matter where well, yeah, it is on the poster planet of the apes we both think it deserves to be on that poster but before we get into that zeke have you been watching anything in the past week yeah i caught a couple films nice um, not a lot um, very good i caught uh in my latest op shop haul i acquired mm. some some nifty films um, I talked about off the air, I acquired Pan's Labyrinth for a dollar, which is kind of crazy. Nice. Um, we covered that okay. a few weeks ago. We did. Or several um, weeks ago. We yeah. did. I also got a film that sort of dives into... Uh, I also got another copy of... A double copy of Before Sunrise and Sunset. Oh, that's funny. And I've obviously got a... At my workplace at the tavern, we have a blockbuster corner. And I've oh, added beautiful. Before Sunrise and Sunset to that. Did you notice... We'll talk about it when we get to Planet of the Apes, of course, but I noticed it. Did you notice there's actually a, uh, not a reference, but there's there's something in this film, in Planet of the Apes, that they completely referenced in Before Midnight. When I rewatched I was like, oh my God, they did this in Before Midnight. Like, it, mm. definitely like a callback or a reference to it. Wow. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll talk about it later. I'm intrigued. I, I was very proud of myself for picking up on that. <laughs> I'm intrigued. <laughs> um... Yeah, so I actually caught, speaking of Richard Linklater, mm. um, I caught his 2005 film, Bad News Bears. Um, oh, I think I've heard of this. Is, yes, it's a, it's a little bit more obscure, so um, it comes obviously just after he's done School of Rock, which right. is his probably more commercially and critically successful sort of teen comedy um like a musical aspect to it as yeah, well. well yeah. yeah, This one doesn't have the musical aspect. This is more sport juvenile comedy. Oh, okay. Comedy. okay. And, 
it's fine. Honestly, it doesn't age very well um, uh, for 2005. Uh, it's funny because I feel like School of Rock ages shockingly well for what it is. <laughs> but but anyway, that's... Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's probably definitely on his weaker and uh, as if you look at the letterbox score, it reflects mm. that. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's actually based off a um, 1976 film, which is actually yeah pretty um, by Michael Ritchie, um, which I imagine is a little bit more like what I was discussing with George Royce Hill's Slapshot. Definitely, mm. probably pulled no punches and had younger kids doing really inappropriate things, and sort of encapsulating that uh, 1970s and 60s thing that. Um, you know, you know, you know, Apollo ten and a half was kind of talking about, obviously okay. in a more contemporary real life stuff. And yeah, look, can't say too much about Bad News Bears. It wasn't a, a particularly didn't, didn't blow uh, you away. No, it's always a shame because you, but you know, you direct the directors you love can't hit every time or can't, you know. Um, and I think Richard Linklater, we've we've talked about his diversity of cinema, so, um. There are things to like in it, but it's just sort of a bit of a nothing film. And I think especially it would have definitely shadowed in comparison to the success that School of Rock did, which was only, what, sure. a year or two earlier. So, yeah, I think that's 2003, so pretty much, yeah. Like yeah, a year or two earlier. so that must have been just what he was focusing on at that period of time. Um, that and, what, Before Sunset, pretty much. And Yeah, Before Sunset, 2004, and then obviously they the were starting Boyhood around this point. There might have been a so, couple of years in a Boyhood. Um, Busy man. Very busy man. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the film. I only caught one other film. Um, yeah. Show-wise, I did kick off with the first two episodes of The Boys, season oh, three. Oh, very nice. Is it a weekly drop or is it they drop the whole thing? Three at um, three at the start and then the weekly after that. Oh, so. that's it. I understand two because that's what Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan, yeah, Obi-Wan Kenobi did and that's what... Soul did two drops in one night, but three episodes in one hit. Well, it's every Friday, so maybe what I honestly two came out. You said two came out on the Thursday. I remember last week, maybe. So maybe one, maybe two came out, and then on the Friday, a third one came out because I only just watched them in the last couple of days. Oh, okay. Um, so like within a couple of days of each other that they yeah. dropped. Okay, but maybe I'm not following. Enjoyable, that. very enjoyable. Mm. Um. I I've heard how the first, gory it is. And I first I heard the first like twenty minutes is absolutely bonkers. <laughs> it's just a gore fest. Yeah. Um, doesn't pull any punches. Um, it's entertaining though. I really like it. And mm. I think the I always forget how gory it is every time I watch it, and then I'm like, wow, this, this <laughs> show does not pull any punches. You're reminded very visibly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think I, you know it's honest. I've I've given I've tried to watch Watchmen to completion like three mm. times, and I get like an hour in. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's not for me. I, but every time I watch this show, I'm like, oh, maybe I should give Watchmen another go because it's just like something it's about sort of the similar. long run, run to, Yeah, it's the tonal about the same. Yeah, right. It's sort of the corrupt like superhero nihilism superhero stuff. Yeah, this okay. is a bit different. I I and obviously it's really cool to see like you know John Carr. John Carlo Esposito. Oh, as... wait. Let me correct this. I've yes. been calling him John Carter Esposito for God knows how many years now. Nearly yeah. 10, maybe, since I started watching Breaking Bad. Apparently, his name is Esposito. That's how you pronounce it. I only okay. just found this out a couple of weeks ago. Esposito. So, Jean-Carl... Jean-Carlo Esposito. Esposito. 
I was listening to the Better Call Soul Insider podcast, and of course, he directed an episode of Soul very recently. Okay. And uh, yeah, apparently, he's that's the pronunciation. Okay, well, I had Jean- no idea. Apologies, Giancarlo es- Esposito. Yeah. Esposito. I'm getting used to it. Um, es- <laughs> I've yeah. been saying it wrong for several years, Zeke. Um, <laughs> he's now kind of the 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 central antagonist yep. of season three, so. Very exciting. It's funny that they went from like Elizabeth Shue in season one, and now they've and they morphed, and now we're in season three, and we've yep. got him right at the top of the old Gus uh, <laughs> hierarchy. So yeah, the Empire. He does make a great. Yeah, I was gonna say the Empire. It's just like, it's so weird seeing him in like Usual Suspects as this like. Oh, is he F- Usual Suspects? Yeah, he's that's the funny. FBI agent that's like there with the burn victim. Oh, okay. But he's got an American accent too, so you're like really confused. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always think of him in Do the Right Thing with the shoes. That's a great scene. It's a great mm. film in general. So, um, yeah, it's been a really good start. And I watched one other film, but what about you, Jake? Oh, well, since we're on the TV train, I might as well jump off you there. So, of course, I'm assuming you watched it too, the third episode of, of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Well, haven't you? You haven't caught it? I did. Yeah? I did, yeah. Yeah. I think... I will say that I don't want... the one in the quarry, right? The quarry. Oh, it has a spectacular ending. Yes. With Mr... Mr. Darth. (laughs) I'm going to call him that. (laughs) I've really struggled to get into it, to be honest. Yeah? I I don't know what it is. I'm just three episodes in, I'm like... I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just that we're not getting enough time, or I feel maybe I'm a bit rushed, or maybe I'm just Star wars out. Maybe I'm fatigued. Potentially, yeah. Because um, I skipped um, the... Is it the Boba Fett show? Yeah. I skipped that, and now I'm watching And I wasn't... A, I was like, it's fine. But the third episode, I'm like, okay, I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to see how all the pieces yeah. come together between so, sort of the... the not resentful, but sort of the, um, the regretful Obi-Wan, and then mm-hmm. you've got sort of the more curious rebellious young Leia and then the third sister is sort of trying to improve Darth Vader and like that She's it's all tough, I think it's uh, yeah. I'm really struggling with her from okay. and I know there's been a lot of backlash and I'm not going to even touch that because there's yeah. backlash every time something changes but it's just it's fair her, to assume Star very, Wars fans are very racist and let's just move on from that. There's that. <laughs> I, I do think she's a very one-dimensional. I think all of the Inquisitor characters have become yeah. very one-dimensional by nature. Yeah. Um, villains, and I find that's kind of a shame because when we when they're portrayed in like even in and it's weird that it's like you know even in a kids show they have mm. more depth of character. Yeah. Like the Grand Inquisitor gets like a backstory in that you understand even within the confines of this marketed at first, and might I add, a Disney original show too, yeah. that was. So it's weird that they were so quick to be like, oh, we're going to put him off to the side because we mm. want to push this other character who, to this point, just has no dimensions of character. But to be fair, in defense of that, neither did Darth Maul in Phantom Menace. So right. it took all this expanded universe <laughs> stuff to be pushed in. <laughs> to give to him make, some character, yeah. Because... Everyone forgets in 19, what, 90... 99, I think. 99. Yeah. The, it, he was just the cool guy with the double lightsaber <laughs> and the horn head. Like, Everyone loved it, yeah. <laughs> he spoke like four lines in that movie. Like, no joke. He has that scene where he's like, oh, yes, uh, they'll be all killed. And then he <laughs> he rocks up, fights him on Tatooine, and then fights him on Naboo, and then that's it. Yeah, and, and then like, he dies. Well, supposedly. Dies. Quote, unquote. 
And I think her character is just it's because it's I think what it is is just how petty the interactions between like they're fighting over what chair to sit in and like or like <laughs> basically Daddy Vader. They're all like sitting around squabbling for Daddy Vader's yeah. approval, yeah. and you're just like these aren't they don't come across menacing like yeah. they, they don't at all come across menacing or no dangerous. it sort of falls into the sequel trap where the, i mean the villains are sort of yelling and screaming and running around too much to be intimidating yeah it's a little like that especially when you compare it to that quarry scene where you're right. like oh this is the fear the fear is not even vader it's it's the what obi-wan did to anakin yeah they yeah. the the gravitas of fear comes around in the scene not because Vader is this, because he's this slow, sluggish, like asthmatic. For some reason, can sneak up on. <laughs> I don't know. It is I, true. It's that is, like it, that seems kind of odd about him. Odd. It's also like, some really odd. I don't know about you, but there's some odd editing cuts too. With like, I, watch yeah. that quarry scene again. I think I noticed it more in the first couple of episodes, but there was like one where he goes from f- like locking lightsabers yep. to cutting away and then cutting back and then Obi-Wan's back being by himself. Oh, okay. It's there. And I was like, there's no... A bit disorientating, yeah. Very disorientating. So. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I'm, I think it's fine enough. I mean, I was reading this as well where someone pointed out that there's actually... There's not a lot of meta jokes and or sort of overly... Ex- expository like references mm-hmm. in the sense that we made fun of last week with Chewie he gets the medal in episode 9 for something he did 60 years earlier because Reddit wanted him to get a medal I yeah. guess um, and it's like I actually kind of like the show hasn't really fallen for that yet someone made the example of like oh we haven't got the backstory to why Leia gets a bun in her hair and why that's important or you know Obi-Wan doesn't say hello there every 5 minutes I was like I guess I respect it <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> to give it some credit, I guess. I haven't had, like, I just, I haven't really got too much to say. Yeah, it's, it almost, it almost feels like, would you prefer, and this is the other thing mm. with, with Star Wars, these live action stuff, they're good, but they're also, they're good and they're bad for different like, they have positives and negatives, so, like, if we're just selling Star Wars to now the diehard Star Wars fans, and we're really not, we're trying to, we're honestly, you've got your your mainstream followers who watch yep. the main content, and then I know they're trying to expand that window, yeah. but obviously they're met with such resistance from these people that are like diehard expanded universe stuff. Is that not where the benefit of things like animation comes in, where mm. you can you get both? I mean, I don't know about you, and I've. I'm annoyed that I haven't given Volume 3 of Love, Death, and Robots a look yet. Okay. But it's like, I'm looking at that and going, oh, well, that's really cool. Like, look at all these different types of animations telling these transcendental stories. And I'm I'm sitting there going, I got more of substance of Star Wars out of its animated shows than I have out of its live action. So is that because they're able to produce more content for a cheaper rate and give me more of that universe for less costs but it's whereas like these live action Mm -hmm. ones are restricted to these six 35 minute 40 minute windows Mm -hmm. because obviously actors cost a lot of money live action costs a lot of money and and i'm sort of like sometimes i'm i'm falling between like there's so much that happens in one episode like 
they're having to, if we take the Obi-Wan instance, he's having to build this relationship with Leia. We're having to ju- build this whole new character in the third sister. And on top of that, deal with this whole Obi-Wan Darth Vader trauma. Right. And we're not spoiling anything to say. That's the whole point of the show. No, it's, no. This I... is characters from the first film that yeah. existed that we talked about last week on the show. So... It's hard for me to tell because I kind of went into the show being like, eh, I'm curious enough to give it a watch, but it's like, I don't think I consider anything a spoiler so far. No. Except maybe like, oh, that layers in it, but it's like, I just, maybe they already announced. I have no idea. No idea. Yeah. So, I think it's, yeah. I, I, there's just a lot to cram into it and I'm sitting here, I'm going, and then, then they're doing the undertones of the rebellion also. So it's right. like, wow, there's they're trying to smush a lot in and we've only now watched just just under two hours worth of content and uh you know it's it it's fine i guess I'm, it's I'm, at that point where it's like it could have just been a film like a lot of these marvel mini series easies yeah where it's like just just make it streamlined why, why and just make it a movie. my thing is why introduce another new character for a story that has you've created this universe so that you can allow the characters that you've even created in the expanded universe and your other properties to flourish in this format. And it's been proven with things like bringing Ahsoka into the Mandalorian show and bringing Boba Fett back. And like, it's, it's, you know, you've allowed like that cross pollination has allowed that to flourish. So why introduce this complete new entity that takes up 15, 20 minutes of time? Mm. You know, and really, all I can come back to is, wow, they really didn't have too much. They didn't really want to explore that much of Obi Wan's psyche, because they're not doing it that much. I mean, for the most part. I mean, it's there. He has like the nightmares, and it's very obviously. soft. I think it's. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Like, if you've trying to pencil in like layers upbringing. Yeah, at the like... end, at the end of the day, the reason they're doing this is because it's like I said yesterday. Sort of the um the cycle of like anticipated sequels where you can make a follow-up to a, a, a dreaded hated prequel series as long as you have something between now and then that yeah. people agree was even worse which could be the sequel trilogy for this matter so i was like oh well people sort of are rethinking their hate for the prequels so let's make a follow-up to it even though there's very little story to to say yeah like the story's concluded from episode three and then you go into episode four it's like obi's story Vader, so that all makes sense. That's all there. Yeah. And there's very little ground for them to cover this is also without suff- breaking the this rules is of a This definitely prequel. suffered the problem of, um, particularly, the like these super fans hype, and then that's the, like them wanting this show. Like I think even the show's existence is like you were talking about. Oh, there's no the meta, the, there's no meta recognition within the the show, and that's good. Mm. But I think the show's existence is a meta recognition yeah, to an extent. Like exactly, that everyone's just suddenly in love with, like they're in love with the Hugh and McGregor Obi Wan, so they just yeah. wanted more of that, really. And enough money drew him back to the role. Let's be real; that's why. And I think that there's a distinct difference between those people that legitimately want to make these properties, like. For example, I, I talked about a couple months ago why I think the Witcher Netflix show has been mm. doing so well, and it's because like someone like Henry Cavill really loved The Witcher and yeah. wanted to play it. And you can tell the difference between someone who's been brought to a role for money, or f- like if they're an up and coming actor that needs a bit of recognition and finances, it's a good platform. And I'm not disputing that; that's how the systems worked for ages. 
but there's a difference i think between like those who do labor even you know we talk about cowboy bebop getting the live adaptation getting cancelled yet the whole cast was talking about how desperately they wanted to do it and most people pretty happy with their result like in its animator um live action conversion yeah i mean i never saw it i don't know if i could say that I, i a lot of what i saw was quite the opposite that a lot of people didn't think the adaptation made sense at all. Mm. But again, I didn't see it. I have no comment on that. But and I don't think that's the reason it got cancelled. It's because of whether it was a good adaptation. This is whether people watched it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's like I said, I just I don't I don't think there's any like malice or, or you know, there's sure. not a labour of love. Like um I think it's Deborah Chow who's who's directed all of these Kenobi episodes. I, I don't doubt that she's invested. I don't doubt that Ewan McGregor um and Hayden Christensen and that they're all committed i don't doubt that it's just there's there's not a lot as someone who didn't really care for this and is mildly interested enough to barely click the play button on my disney plus account i'm like it's fine it's okay it's not wowing me it's not terrible Mm -hmm. but i'm just and i i think it goes to the passiveness of that where making a mini series it it kind of doesn't make in the traditional sense where you make a mini series for television doesn't make a lot of sense because, you know, as we know, most series, you need at least a couple of seasons before they actually start making any real money. So to make a miniseries that relies on ad revenue, I don't know how it worked initially. That's probably why you see it more is because they're just baked into subscription. Mm-hmm. Models is why Disney just pumps them out these days, um, where most of the Marvel stuff's only a miniseries as well. I think maybe two of their shows are having a second season. Um, and I don't think the Kenobi show... Is no. getting a second... Is this the miniseries thing? No, you know, he did just this week get greenlit for a second season. What? What? Kenobi one, I'm pretty sure. Oh, it did? Yeah. Oh. Let me fact check that one. Yeah, okay, I'm really curious. <laughs> How much story's left? You know what I mean? I, yeah, I don't know. I It's funny, I brought it up just to say that I was like, okay, I'm kind of... I'm seeing how it's all falling into place and I'm sort of mildly interested in the rest, but um, what followed was a very negative conversation about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what it's reported it's supposedly in development. Oh, okay. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, it's interesting. Now, this is w- releasing weekly, yeah. which I'm I'm generally a fan of. Like, I, as much as I get frustrated, like, oh, I want to see all the better consoles. I like that it's weekly because you give each episode savor gets it. A, a savor it, exactly. The opposite of savoring it is doing what Netflix have done with Stranger Things. Oh, you got to tell me. So I've give seen me, I've seen me. the first four episodes. I haven't seen it all. How many? How many are there? Uh, there's seven, and then there's dropping two more a month from now. Are they like conventional forty minute episodes? Or? Dude, they're like ninety minutes each. They are long, which goes to the point. Why on earth didn't they just drop? like weekly releases of stranger things every episode is so packed you're talking about like how much they have to get through in a single episode for kenobi it's like there is so much in each individual episode of stranger things they're 90 minute episodes they're events they're straight up events and i'm enjoying it season four i just haven't had time to watch the last couple of episodes but i'm really enjoying them movies they're movies they're giant they're movies (laughs) they're feature films (laughs) you've watched really you've watched four films this week i know it feels like i watched a bunch oh my god but um i just i don't understand like you easily could have done and the fact that imagine if they did that by the time episode seven comes out guess what we would be past the point where episodes eight nine would be ready to go so you would just have nine continuous episodes over nine weeks instead of let's drop seven now and then another two in like six weeks and then season five comes out and that might be split into four parts. Who knows anymore? Who cares? 
I'm getting uh, so okay. What? Yep. Let's before we okay. jump. Let's jump into the <laughs> the episodes you've watched. Yep. Is the reason that they've got these big long episodes? Is it because obviously a lot of our characters at the end of the last season kind of dispersed? Mm. Um, to an extent, they were all part of it. Yes. Is age a factor? Do they time skip a little? Not not more than they usually do. I think every season what takes place a year apart. So this one's 86, which means the first season took place in, what, 83? So I it's the same. It's the usual jump. So how old are they now? What are they, meant to be 14, 15? I guess. I mean, they look nearly 18 at this point, but I don't know. I actually don't. I'm not, like, keeping track of it mm. in that way because I just sort of like, okay, this is a new year, a new adventure sort of okay. sort of shtick. But to your point, I that was one of the first things I noticed in episode one is... And it's part of the structure. Every season, you have a bunch of different characters, you know, brothers and sisters of, of part of this family and then friends and then obviously you've got like Hopper who's like the town cop and you, you have all these different groups of people that come together to solve little mysteries and then by the end of the season, they're all in the same room together. See, they bring all the clues together and then they fight the big bad monster. That's is, the structure of every Stranger Things season. Really, it's weird now because I almost feel like I've gone to the upside down and not realised, not remembered nearly anything from the first two seasons. Like, right. I seem to recall the first season was sort of a where's Will? Is it Will? Yeah, The kid Will. that goes missing? Yeah, yeah where's Will, Will is yeah. kind of the... That's the where's whole point Wally? of the first season. And, and every episode <laughs> is like incrementally stepping closer to finding out about Will. And then obviously you have the 11 stuff happening sort of simultaneously yeah, the 11 stuff the under the 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 upside down world as you see the monster that it, the demogorgon i think is yeah. what it's called like you have all of those little like mysteries all the different spurts of characters are figuring out and then at the end they come together they share and their the, information the second season's kind of odd because the second season doesn't quite have a, as much of a structure does it it's well it's the same structure it's a different mystery where they got to figure out like the tangential like the tunnel monster what's what the what's it called See, I don't know what some of the names of these monsters, but like, there's the big tentacle monster in the sky, and then it turns out that it's like a t- a tunnel pathway of um, Hawkins the town. There's still mystery elements that the characters come mm. together to solve. And then the third one is the shopping center. Yeah, with the Russian underground lab, and it gets a little little kooky in that sense. <laughs> yeah. So and it's a similar dies. structure. Yeah, they they touch on the Billy stuff with obviously Max, the the younger, I think half sister. Um, her like episode her her episode is episode 4 like that's like I think it's actually the highest rated episode of the show so does each of them have an episode is that sort of how it well it starts off with you have all your different I'm actually going to mute my computer before I get more discord messages <laughs> but it starts off with you know you're setting up all the characters like you said they're dispersed so it's not like you have you know these different families and some of them are in middle school some of them are in high school some of them have summer jobs you got that, plus the fact that now some of them are in Hawkins, uh, some of them are in California. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Hopper's in Russia. That's not a that's not a spoiler. They they put it out immediately. They're like, Hopper's not dead. Hopper's not dead. You got you got to know that. that Hopper's not dead. Um, they they you know establish all these different storylines, all these different characters. Plus, they're adding new characters into the mix. So you realize when you're watching a 90 minute first episode of the season, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, they just got to establish. All of these different locations, all of these different characters, all of these new storylines, then bring in the mystery element, which I love the mystery element of it this season. It's very much Wes Craven, Nightmare on Elm Street, sort of boogeyman monster um, stick where it's almost like hallucinogenics and like it's like the dream world where things are, on, are constantly changing and people are having these visions and, and some of the death scenes are 
spectacular. I love some of the death scenes <laughs> in this season. But to that structure, it's like, it's getting so mind-boggling. I feel like I have to, like, map out all the different character bubbles and where they are around the country mm-hmm. and or around the world. Some of them are in different countries. Um, and as the season goes, yes, they're slowly... The groups of characters are slowly, like, um, converging. And so it's like, okay, it used to be, like... I'm just going to throw names out there. It's like, oh, it's Will and and Sam and, and um, Lucas. And then over here, you've got, like, Nancy and, and this character. And then slowly, they all start to melt together because they start bringing their clues together. Mm-hmm. I'm just throwing names. That's not the actual, like, groupings in this season. But, like, the structure calls for it to be so much to follow in the first episode. And then it slowly all comes together and makes more sense. But that's, again... That's enjoyable? Just, I, I'm enjoying it a lot. I think it's quite fun. I don't think it's as... I couldn't quite pin what I season three was sort of lacking for me. I think it was, you know, the Russian underground mole stuff. I think it was a little, a lot of it was quite silly. And I still think this thing's like purposely silly in this mm-hmm. season, but I don't, I don't think it's as intense. The lack of Hopper, Hopper's like not in it very much in those first few episodes. I think is actually very healthy <laughs> for the show. I actually think Hopper's kind of a meh character. Oof. And, but people said that last season. They were like, oh, he's just sort of like an angry stepdad character. And then he dies, but not really at the end. And it's like, I don't disagree with that. Yeah, I, I think I just enjoyed the Winona Ryder, David Harbour right. interactions, the yeah, back and yeah. forth there. But I, I think like his arc is completed by the end of the first season, isn't it? Like, yeah, he's had a sense. lost child. He yep. goes and collects a lost child. Season two, he's he looking after to, the child. But, yeah. yeah. So by season three, he is cut. He's getting used to the children growing up. Like they really should have just let him stay dead. Yeah. They really should have. Like I'm, like I said, I'm not completely through the season. I'm four episodes in, but so far I'm just like, I don't get the Hopper stuff. What's it leading to? What's the point? I just, I don't know. And some of the arcs are like, there's, there's all the stuff with, um, with Will and Mike's the main kid, I'm pretty sure, Finn Wolfhart. Mm. I swear, they're having, like, the same arguments, the same conversations about, like, Will's feeling neglectful and he's losing his friends because they all want to grow up and, obviously, he has a girlfriend now in 11 and Lucas joined the basketball team. It's like, I feel like we've done all this. Haven't we done all this? I swear this is what season three was about. Yeah. I just... So, some of that's a little repetitive, but I'm still ultimately enjoying it. Um, the music's great as always. Do you not it's realize getting... that in reasons why I got four seasons? Like things don't change in high schools. It's a toxic cycle. <laughs> it's always the same. Exactly. I got to give a shout out. It's not just the eighties music. I like Fever by the Cramps. That's, they use that in the Hangover when they all wake up in the hotel. I was like, that's an eighties song. That's sick. I didn't even know that. But they're even doing clever things with you know. One time they play. I I don't know if it's a Mozart piece, but it's some classical piece of music that they then it slowly turns into like a Santanic cover of it as mm-hmm. it like goes to the D boys and then um they have like the american national anthem that then slowly turns into like a dirty guitar version of it as it as it's like cross-cutting between like a basketball game and then a D game and there's great filmmaking going on and the characters are great i'm invested my favorite episodes are generally the first ones before all like the horror mystery elements start coming because i just like watching these characters be yeah, themselves absolutely but um i'll watch the rest of it next week i am or over the next week i'm very excited to see more but I get very angry about this whole just dump them all on one day attitude that they have with Netflix. Just let the episodes breathe. There is so much in each individual episode. Let them breathe. Yeah. Let them relax. Reward the filmmaker's effort. 
Well, exactly. Because then people are going to watch it all in a day and then not be able to distinguish what happens from one episode to the next. And it, it low-key bugs me quite a bit, but... Low-key. Low-key. <laughs> Only low-key. Uh, now, I've got a little more to talk about. I'll, I'll bounce it back to you. Yeah. There's one more film you've yeah. seen? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I watched... Uh, uh, sort of always wanted to clock this film in. It's got mm. a pretty cool cast. Okay. Yeah, um, it was the the film that pretty much wrapped up... Uh, I think this was the film that... Um, Robert Redford announced his retirement from acting. Oh, uh, the old, old man, man and the, and the gun. gun. Nice. Um, How would you think? Directed by David Lowry, who just did The Green Knight in the last year. Oh. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. Hell yeah. I really enjoyed it. Nice. I, it's home. It's sort of... Uh, Redford is reprising sort of his swindler role, which you know we love in The, <laughs> the Sting, except yep. he's... Sort of the gentleman bank robber, you know, set in like the eighties. Gentleman, and yeah, basically, it sort of has a discussion of age and has some really cool, um, you know, sort of smaller ensemble cast with Tom Waits and Danny Glover mm, playing nice. his sort of colleagues and Casey Affleck's sort of the detective oh, that works. So it's it's just a really good cast and it's a really probably doesn't do anything too special. Some nice like JL cut stuff, but. I think the film is more like meant to be a love letter to the the, the Redford gentleman swindler. Yeah. Um, you couldn't have this film would not nearly be as good if it wasn't him playing this role. Just for yep. the context of his cinematic career, and it's it's not just the films that he did, you know, with George Roy Hill, but it's it's just sort of his persona is this overall generally this gentleman, yeah. um, this this naturally charismatic man that seems to always get his way and i think that's sort of what i mean he he reprised gatsby in in an earlier telling of the great gatsby you know mm. it's it sort of just was a seminal piece to sum up uh robert redford as an acting as an actor so yeah it's a really good film nifty film to check out I reckon. oh yeah no i'd love it's to hard. see that and i didn't realize he directed as well so that's cool but green knight and guy um, it's a little spoiled by the fact that he does end up in Avengers Endgame in a cameo like after the film's release. But it but doesn't matter. Yeah. It's still great. Nevertheless. It's pretty cool. So the only other thing I'll talk about is I watched three short films that are all available on YouTube. So you can quickly look these up if you want to engage on them. Uh, from three very important directors. Three very important contemporary directors I'll add. Mm-hmm. I'll start with Hansel and Gretel, 2007, which is a very faithful retelling of the Hansel and Gretel story from the Brothers Grimm. Directed by... Robert Eggers, oh, of wow. course, yeah, he did the lighthouse, then the the witch, of course, the Northman. Mm-hmm. Apparently, was gonna do Nosferatu. That would have been perfect. I don't know if he's going to do that anymore, but it kind of felt like I was watching Nosferatu. This felt very like purposefully stylistic, as if you're you're pulling something out of the old vault mm-hmm. where you have sort of the the rolling film title cards. The entire soundtrack is just like a piano score that obviously was like played separate from what was shot. You know, high contrast black and white and German expressionism shots of, like, the gingerbread house in the forest. It's all, like, this weird, creepy shape and the Dutch tilt close-up angles of the witch and mm-hmm. just very stylistic. It's, it's like, nearly 30 minutes long. It's way too long, I reckon, because it's just a lot of shots of kids running around in a forest at the end of the day. But as, like, an experiment of style, I yeah. thought it was really it was really nifty in that sense and that, you know, something you did in The Lighthouse 12 years later, which is sort of shooting a film as if it was shot in that time and respecting the time period 
and you know and that aspect ratio with that technology and him sort of doing the same thing Hansel and Gretel yeah um, which I guess is in the public domain I guess that's how he was able to do it mm. so thought that was pretty nifty other one I saw was Pauline which is Celine Scamar's uh, short film a uh, very impeccably simple short film with the whole mm-hmm. seven minutes is focused on a girl Pauline lying in bed sort of recounting stories from her her childhood and from growing up outside of the closet and um, just a very nice simple little story kind of the Thunder Road-esque style of one-shot storytelling focused on it on a big monologue and I thought it was really nifty but you just same feeling you get watching Portrait yeah um, which is wonderful and the last one I'll talk about is Julia Decanu's first available short film this one comes in at 21 minutes it's a very good 21 minutes though so for those who've seen Raw and Titan you know her I haven't seen Raw yet I love Titan about body you know deterioration and um, I guess the word is like a physical metamorphosis is sort of the consistent mm-hmm. theme in a lot of her films um, but this one tackles sort of the growing pains and, and a very literal shedding of the skin um, that comes with puberty and in particular puberty in young girls and I love sort of the naturalistic cinematography and all the relationships in high school where everyone's sort of mean to each other and how that evolves with what ends up happening to this girl's body and it's very graphic and gross but very thoughtful and I just thought it was excellent um, so Hansel and Gretel Pauline and Junior all on YouTube um, I think Two of those, yeah, actually, yeah, two of those three, you need subtitles. And, of course, Hansel and Gretel has no dialogue at all. So that's not there the you problem go. there. Yeah, no, I just I wanted to check those all out. They're all great. They're all on letterbox as well, so you can <laughs> give them a little yeah, grade as cheeky well. Cheeky log. Exactly, exactly. No worries. Well, I guess, uh, do you have anything to add in our career section this week? Um, Oh, of course I do. I Like I told you off the show, I finished a fourth draft for my short film. Spicy. I don't know if we've named it on this podcast yet. Or if we said the name. One to name it on the it podcast. It is. Yeah, sure. Why not? It's called Skin and Blister. What could it mean? Working title, patent pending. <laughs> uh, hopefully, that's the, the locked in title. Yes. Actually, you know what? I'm going to look it up right now on Letterboxd. See if I, I'm not stealing it from anyone. Let's find out, Zeke. No matches for your search term. Perfect. We can claim it, Zeke. We can go. claim it. There you go. <laughs> well, that's very exciting stuff. Oh, uh, thank you, sir. I guess it's time for us to move into our film of the week. We're moving into the 1960s for our countdown through the decade of retrospective. Jake, there were two films that went up for grabs. Mm -hmm. Which one won and what are we watching? So, uh, of course, the other one that was in grabs was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You mentioned George Roy Hill, so there you go. Sad, sad face. (laughs) Paul was 16 to 13, so it was actually pretty close. Yes. But it ultimately went to Planet of the apes can't help thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man has to be the words are charlton heston's get out a last signal the word that we've landed the world he finds out in the galaxy will challenge every idea you've ever had of civilization A planet where man is the lowest order of living things, and the superior beings are apes. They build the cities, make the laws, the gods, and control the guns that hunt a race of lowly, terrified humans who run wild in the jungles, are caged in the prisons, and stuffed in the museums. 
20th Century Fox transforms the motion picture screen into Planet of the Apes. Pierre Boulle's finest novel since Bridge on the River Kwai. There's a world gone insane, an upside-down civilization that could not be real. Yes, a world of madness and terror. Man has no understanding. He can be taught a few simple tricks, nothing more. You did it. You cut up his brain, you bloody baboon! It's a A US spaceship lands on a desolate planet stranding astronaut Taylor in the world dominated by apes, 2,000 years into the future, who use a primitive race of humans for experimentation and sport. Soon Taylor finds himself among the hunted, his life in the hands of a benevolent chimpanzee scientist. Oh, hopefully she can save the day with her scientific skills, of course. Very true, very true, very true, very true. I'm getting Planet lazier with these responses. Of the apes. <laughs> yes. It's, a, it's quite a good film. It's a very good film. It's a great film. Remind um, me again, had you had you seen this before last week? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I saw yeah, this. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You were telling me your mum saw it a million... Or your mum's mum yeah, my, saw it a million times. So, the yeah, my nan, Charlton Heston, was like her favourite human being. And, yeah. Um, yeah, when this film came out, this became the film that my mum got dragged to the drive-thru. That's right. You can um, tell me that. I think like 10 times she said so um it's a very good film um there's a there's a lot to sort of deconstruct with it um we talked a little bit about its uh novella to script evolution in the first part of the show um and sort of the reinterpretations that you know schaefer and um his associate writers kind of brought with the cinematic interpretation of that Mm. novella so jake Planet of the Apes. Mm, I've heard of it. I think I think it's pronounced Earth. <laughs> I'll just spoil the movie for everyone. <laughs> well, that's it. I think everyone, especially like in our generation, you know the pl- you know the twist of the film before you've seen the film. Yeah, I generally I feel like most people our age. Would. Is it one of the best twists of twentieth century cinema? I think I would say yes. I don't think it gets talked about in the same vein as like Luke, I'm your father, or no, I, I should say no, I'm mm, your father. Um, I gotta get the Kaiser Kaiser so say. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that's definitely like one of the more talked about ones, and that obviously is like well over a decade after mm. Planet of the Apes. But I think I kind of wish I could be there in the theater. You know, nowadays you can go on Google and look up all these like reactions, like a theater reaction to Doctor Strange and the. Multiverse of Madness, and everyone's cheering every five minutes. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of wish I could see that for Planet of the Apes. Yeah, it, it, I ending. think the socio-cultural resonance that this reveal would have had in a 1968 cinema is more potent than something like we'd have, like you said, with Doctor Strange especially, but yeah. something even like Luke, I Am Your Father, because if we think of the time when this film was made, 1968, you mm. know, we're we're just moving out of the Cold War. If we're in a U.S. cinema, we're moving into Vietnam. We've already had, we've had a you know thing. We've had the heights of technological evolution with the moon landing. Mm. Um, 
And in the midst of going to Vietnam and having JFK and MLK be assassinated within the last year or two prior to that. So there's a lot happening in 1968 America, which this film sort of offers commentary on. And, you know, upon my rewatch, one Mm. of the first distinct things I brought up in my head was, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but with, with Tarantino's... Django Unchained and okay. the um, sort of construction of the cages in Django Unchained mm. in comparison to something like Planet of the Apes, there, there definitely is that racial um, subtextual conversation happening yeah. with Schaefer's film, um, which obviously is echoed in, in a more contemporary work like Django, um, which Tarantino's, you know, Directors of the age were mostly '60s directors, so yeah. Well, we, we know that late assume? '60s was definitely Tarantino's jam, as we saw in <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and a lot of other directors, I suppose. So, is that wrong to see that comparison there? No, and I think I think you're actually kind of spot on in the sense that when I watch it, I'm I'm taking all of these, you know, this visual, uh, the, the visuals, and obviously sort of the the, the metaphors and the messages that I'm getting about, you know, class, um, not even diversity, but more so. Uh, the divide between classes, I suppose. You can look at it from such a general example of, like, you know, creatures and animals and how they treat each other and the whole, like... I mean, they even use the quote of, like, um, you know, some apes are more equal than others, which, you know, very Orwellian sort of... Mm-hmm. as a quote in there. But you're right. You can totally interpret this in more specific ways, whether it is about diversity groups, um, you know, whether it is about slavery and all these other things. I think the film is very much open to all of those interpretations absolutely i mean i think the even the the robbing of one's voice and allowing other Mm. people to speak on your behalf is a prominent feature in in django and a lot of racial um based films and and cinema of the other and but it's it's which this film has a its whole second act with a nearly mute uh, protagonist yeah well, in he's which physically unable to speak yeah yeah in which all of the speaking is done on behalf of him yeah um in which that in- opens an interesting dialogue and, and it's very similar to something that was kind of happening in in like i said django when it's like Django's not speaking for significant portions of the film because yeah. christoph waltz has to do the talking because of a racial prejudice or the whole dialogues with DiCaprio's character talking about the biology of of the inferior race, yeah, which yeah. definitely plays into the the subtext of this film. Yeah, tons of talk about evolution, and obviously the more direct evolution of, of ape and man, but sort of reversed in, in this film. But no, you're right. I think, I mean, you're making excellent points in regards to that. Um, I know we sort of joked last week, like, oh, I wonder how racist this film is upon <laughs> upon reflection i think it's actually I, a very s- culturally aware film i um, definitely think it's it's more aware than we're going to give it credit for because e- even the stuff with like i think it's a little weird they kill the only female astronaut like in the first five minutes of the film but that being said all the stuff with um nova and it's like there's there's commentary there as much as it's like okay <laughs> yeah look I, I actually think this film where where it's making leaps and bounds with something like it's 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 race depiction and sociocultural yeah. awareness on that front is obviously being detracted by its gender representation is probably yeah. where it's actually suffering. I will say probably... Dr. Zero, though, is a fantastic character. And, that, and but that's that, it. That's so, the counterpoint. But then, obviously, yeah. Nova is really just... 
there to be there. <laughs> there to be there. And it's sort of there to be, oh, well, Hester needed a female interest. Yeah, I guess to, so. Like, because all protagonists must have... I mean, if if you're retelling this version of this film, yeah. do you make him fall in love with her? Is that not what Tim Burton tried to achieve with his 2001? That's the only Planet of the Apes I haven't seen is the Tim Burton one. And I feel like that's probably the I have, I have not, one. but I seem to recall oh, okay. that's the... That is a thing that that was sort of a retcon. It was Warburg didn't fall in love with a female human. It was a right. female ape. Oh, uh, okay. Um, he kisses Doctor Zero in this as well, which is yeah, it's I, I know. Sick. <laughs> I noticed when you did the um. So the polls that we do every week, you've actually you've done up the little video clips that play that yeah. we do the poll on. I noticed one of your screen grabs for Planet of the Apes was him kissing Doctor Zero. <laughs> Because it's such an odd kiss, isn't it? Because it's like, the one thing is just like the mouth is just a little open. It's just like, doesn't quite work. Oh, God. I thought that was quite funny. It's an odd thing to do, too, isn't it? Like, it it, it didn't stick out as much to me this time because she is the one that ultimately did kind of find him a sense of freedom in this film. But it's still, like, if you remade this film word for word or shot for shot, you probably... That's a little... I don't know. You probably wouldn't have that. You probably wouldn't. It's probably part to do with, like... Obviously, they looked at each other as, like, inferior beings. And I guess that's, like... A kiss is, like, a sign of... Egalitarianism? I guess, like, a mutual respect slash affection. Wouldn't you find a more universal sign, I guess? (laughs) We're talking about semiotical um, representation. Yeah. I don't don't know. I'm trying to to help the film out. (laughs) Yeah. I think what oh, resonates God. with me the most when I watch this film is, you know, you brought up the production design and sort of how this film, this film was trans, uh, was obviously a script, but prior to a script, it was a novel. And then the transcribing process of that allowed this film to become, a, apparently with the early works of the novel, it was less science fiction based and more moralistic and phys- philosophical, just with a scientific, uh, okay. uh, sci-fi background basically whereas this film definitely entrenches itself in its sci-fi dystopianism i would say is it dystopian i guess it sort of is in a a sense i think it goes back to what i was saying the very start about it sort of having the 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 primordial um like look to it where all the like sort of the little weird cave hut things that they built um and even like tools they're using are quite archaic or um What's the word that I'm looking for? Yeah, like archaic, because it's probably the best way to describe it. Ancient, maybe ancient tools. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, because like I was sort of inferring earlier, I think this whole thing, and this is reinforced by the fact that there are four direct sequels to this film, and that storyline across the five films uh, is a perfect circle, because spoiler alert the start of the third film shows that even though, okay, I gotta say the ending to the second one, the fact that the world just blows up and that's the ending of the second ape film is just the funniest thing. That, I've never that, seen the sequels. Uh, I just spoiled it. In the second one, the world literally blows up. Yeah. And, it, and then in the third one, two apes go back in time and then it starts films three, four and five sort of complete the circle and lead us back to this timeline. So to speak. it's, it's actually kind of interesting how they do it. But again, that point of like, it's just a circular timeline where history repeats itself over and over again. And that's what I feel like this film is talking about with evolution and sort of cultural society norms and discoveries of, you know, we're all destined to 
learn how to travel, whether it's by horse or car or whatever. Eventually, we all learn how to fly. Eventually, we all learn how to create law and order, at least in the eyes that we do. Mm-hmm. And that it's going to cause destruction, and then it's going to rebuild and cause destruction again. So, in regards to like a dy- when I think of like dystopian future, um, especially maybe one that's like glamorous and it looks like kind of looks like the modern day Star Wars planets with this flying vehicles and everything looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's this film almost feels like it's saying that that's an impossibility because society, man, ape, whatever, whomever is destined to destroy itself and rebuild and destroy over and over. True. Again. But then you could argue that that's sort of the consensus of even the Matt Reeves ones, like, mm. except it's the inverse. We watch the downfall of humanity and the rise of, of, of the apes really. Yeah. Um, so that we watch, we're single-handedly watching the cyclical evolution of both characters, I guess. And, yeah, yeah. Um, well, the main difference, sort of from a structural point of view, this one we follow the astronauts. It's more of a journey, and like we're discovering with these characters. Yeah. Like, okay, what's this landscape? And then as like the yellow desert slowly turns into greenery. But then I think that's the that's even the distinction and difference between science fiction and fictional like fictional drama or fan like because you mm. wouldn't say the matt reeves part of the apes movies are science fiction really like they're more it's de- it feels more grounded it f- it's less rooted in spaceships and yeah, desolate future planets like that uh, that va- trilogy doesn't take place thousands of years in the future it takes place now yeah um and i think it's that's it's basically taking a science fiction co- concept and making it a contemporary drama with yeah. sci-fi elements, if you will, sure. but not even really. I mean, at the end of the day, it's really just a vaccine that's used to cure Alzheimer's, right? Yeah, systematically leads. So it's really just a contemporary drama with fan- fantastical elements, really. Yeah, um, the sci-fi is very minimal in, in the trilogy. Exploration is a is a grounded core of of science fiction going Mm. to an unknown world especially in 1968 when i said like the moon landing's coming so the whole concept of the unknown is 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 fantastical by nature same year that uh, 2001 came out yeah so So, we're in that in that era yeah so exploration is such a huge aspect and then the dramas and the racial commentaries and the cultural commentaries are embedded in this science fiction like uh nature and it's really interesting comparing something like this that is clearly trying to make more provocative and thought thought inducing perspectives mm. in its science fiction compared to what we were talking about last week where it's just traditional traditionalistic structure mm. and hero's journey free act structure that kind the, of thing the the selling point for it is the science fiction part mm. in this it's not really i mean it's he's an astronaut and we don't we don't get inundated with science fiction jargon he's on a spaceship and the spaceship crashes and he ends up in this this new world yeah and i found it funny that the three astronauts who you imagine are all scientists they climb out of admittedly a sinking ship and they they jump out but it's like they don't take one second to be like can we even breathe the air that this planet emits yeah they're just like oh we're gonna wing it it really becomes (laughs) and at first it becomes an epist you know a a topic of epistemology like studying a culture and and being sort of just a fly on the wall observing the culture Mm. and yeah to an extent even when taylor loses his voice and is in captivity yes the 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 mission changes to escape escape is a big part but there's still that studying side, and obviously it, it gets reflected with with Zira's interactions and yeah. the back and forth Cornelius and Zira have with Taylor. 
And well, there's still discovery when, say, for example, one of the times he's attempting to escape and he's sort of running through this little culture that they or society that they've built. And it's like you have, like, the museums with the, I guess, they're stuffed humans. Yes. But I saw I saw the, the stuffed scientist. It actually looked like he was, like, moving and kind of blinking. I don't know if that was just the actor Probably was. trying to stay frozen. <laughs> um, but then you got, like, the, I don't know if it was a school or, like, a worship center where they're talking about, like, the law of ape that child and Heston like runs past. So it's like, even when we're past that, so I guess it would be the midpoint of discovery where it is now about escaping this, this, you know, hell hole. What does he call it? A madhouse. As madhouse. He calls it. Um, we're, we're still learning about the culture that these apes have, have built. And again, the, the similarities of that, where there is, you know, religion and worship, there's science and biology and mm. all these things. They haven't quite figured out flying. <laughs> But it's just that yeah, we evolutionary almost, almost, stage. We've almost come to a, a, a medieval cross Victorian era. Yeah, yeah. Like this real hom- hodgemodge that they have guns, but yes, <laughs> they live in <laughs> little huts. cave huts. But yeah. then it comes back to, but this also comes back to things like indulgence mm. and and that sort of notion. The all like you bring it up, the Orwellian uh, nature of of this communism state that's clearly not a communist state. <laughs> and that's what they're trying to infer. Like this, yeah. all, like that making that almost direct Orwellian line is the fact that this is meant to be this egalitarian ape society in which yeah. only the humans are subservient, but all the apes, no matter what their breed is, are equal when yeah. that's not true. And things like worship, science, knowledge, and power are being withheld by those who, discovered it first really yeah, exactly there's a lot of the truth hiding fake news going around <laughs> um and that's the big part and it's almost like they don't want to be told they don't want the truth being revealed that humans were once the, the power driven race yeah and as what they've discovered in their their wreckages and such and well we see what dr says the first hint that we know that there's something up is when he sees the writing in the sand and he actively covers it up and it's like from that point you know that this this almighty leader dr says is, is obviously hiding a i don't want to call it a terrible truth but yeah he's well, he's, he's keeping his people ignorant well, because it would, because uh, then that would bring in the concept of human rights, wouldn't it? Yeah. Knowing this, knowing who was native or first to this land, yeah, brings in that whole, uh, you know, sociocultural. There's uh, a line that 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 George Taylor actually says when they first stumble. I love the way they reveal the humans, where it's these big wide shots of them traveling. You sort of see little in the corners of the frame. Oh, there's people here. But literally, he has a line when he first sees them, and he's like, oh, I think they're mute, um, and this is, like, all they have. He literally says, if this is the best they got, in six months, we'll be running the planet. It's almost like, immediately, that's where his brain goes, and it's like a human ape. It's all the same selfish needs of control and power. Yeah. They just cannot help themselves. Yeah, which is, a, you know, it obviously, it, it's reflected. Because yeah. that's exactly the notions of the the doctor. To have a, a doctor be your key act antagonist, this this garter of knowledge, mm. this this person that's often seek to help and have the the uh, literally has the title that says that he's more intellectual than the masses around him, yep. and uniquely singles him out. Really, you know, all the subtext is there. I think that's, that's it. Really... Even just from like an ape society standpoint of like they've gotten to the point where they're literally calling people doctors. 
Now, I know the twist is that it is Earth and that when you get into the later films, you see the humans and apes sort of working side by side. So it's not surprising like they speak the same language. They're all speaking English. They're using the same like terminology as humans would because that ultimately is how the rest of the films reveal yeah. is that it was, it was all cyclical between the two species. But as a singular film, you're right. It's like they're already coming up with these, these pronouns and these titles that suggest that some apes are more equal than others. Yeah. <laughs> How's the makeup in the film? It's great. It's, I mean, it's, it's completely, um, what's the word? We said groundbreaking for Star Wars last week. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, this film does a lot of groundbreaking stuff for mm. its, its makeup. It's mainly, we talk about the production design. Yeah. And the cleverness at where this becomes, this becomes a quintessential sci-fi film is building that lore depth, like yep. having that sort of stuff and having the different breeds of, of monkey, you know, different breeds of apes and, and having them You've be able to interact. You know, like, obviously you could giggle at it now, but it's yep. like, you have to remember this movie is over 50 years old now. Right. Oh yeah. my God. When I, when I first see, cause it takes what, 30 minutes before the apes show up. Yeah. Every time you get that first like crash zoom of the ape, we're going to talk about the crash zooms mm-hmm. <laughs> in this film at some point. Um, I know. <laughs> new, new, new. Surprise lobotomy. <laughs> Surprise. Um, Oh, gosh, what was I saying? I got distracted by the crash zooms. The first time you see the ape. First time you see the ape is, like, even still today. I'm like, damn, this looks great. Yeah. This looks Imagine fantastic. how hot it would have been in those outfits. Oh, my God. Well, I think I read a fact that this was the only apes film they shot in the summer, and they learned their lesson. Everyone from now on was shot in the winter, <laughs> because you're right, how bloody hot it would oh, be under that makeup. you could see it, too, like, with, like, like the uh, Schaefer's just, like, got his shirt off behind the camera, and you're just like... <laughs> You're just mean. You gotta uh, weather it out with them. I know exactly. Yeah, you're the, you gotta put on the the suit as well. Absolutely, <laughs> all the makeup. Yeah, I, I, I have like to say, say, I think Jerry Goldsmith's um, score needs to be addressed. Here. Oh my god, um, I love it. Doesn't it remind you of Tatooine from last week? Yeah, a lot and of the cues. Williams is all time great, but we always forget how good Goldsmith was and Quint mm. and strong in this era. I mean, I remember writing about Alien, which okay. is sort of. The I think is magnum opus of of, of composing score, right. and scoring, but the drums in this, or the 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 <laughs> the way of creating this foreign world that's primordial but curious, yes, yes, is yes. it's really good. It's really good. There's it's, chunks of it I noted that sounds like pots and pans sort of smacking against each other, yeah. but um, you nailed on the head. It does feel sort of primal in yeah. in its essence and. And I think that has Fantastic to be great because we always forget because like Williams is great with his string quartets and mm. and and I th- that's sort of what he's known for. But I I think the diversity of of Goldsmith's range over his films and how like pun intended how alien they all feel to each other. They yeah. really feel whereas like a Williams score kind of sounds like a Williams score. Like it's a very um, like some of his uh, work with Spielberg and Lucas was very similar, especially in that eighties period. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are multiple nights where they're like, "Oh, it's a John Williams appreciation night," and it's covers from like four di- forty different films, but are like all eerily similar. They can be flowed in, whereas it's so distinct what Goldsmith does with. Yeah, I think mean, distinct's the right word, and uh, well, almost slightly more abstract. Yeah. In some ways. Absolutely. Yeah, which I really like. Um, like I said, sometimes it just sounds like sounds. There's a little track when, again, when he's in like that museum 
It's a little more conventional, but it, it's just like the dun, 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 like him hiding music. <laughs> I I, I kind of like that. It's, it's sounds different, but I like that track yeah. as well. But yeah, no, I, I I'm glad you gave a shout out to that. And like we said before, the some of the cinematography. I this there's the sweeping helicopter shot when the when the spaceship initially lands in the water, mm-hmm. and you have this big long sort of like swoop around the thing, and then well even the the point of view shots of the plane or the the ship landing. And it's just like all these like disorientating, quick pans and tilt shots of like mm. mountains, and which watching it knowing that you're on Earth is like, yeah, no, this is Earth. <laughs> Even though it's meant to be desolate and in the middle of nowhere, it's still Earth. Um, and then the crash zooms. I think mean, what what's your favorite crash zoom in the film scene? The surprise little bottomy one. The little bottomy one's good because it's he turns the head as the camera. Yeah, <laughs> like I get it. It used to be like the conventional way of dramatically revealing something, but it's just kind of comedic now because it's like such a horrible thing to happen to someone. Yeah, and it's it, to be honest, to that point, is the only other character that has like dialogue, like like human character. Yeah, like, yeah. You get a little invested in, and just like that crash zoom is just hilarious <laughs> that and I, then like when the lady astronaut at the start dies and they're like oh it's like a skeleton face yeah. that kind of thing yeah, yeah. that didn't stick out too much to me my favorite one this is easily like the worst one <laughs> but not not because of the zoom itself but yeah. because of what follows it is the tiny american flag in the rocks <laughs> and it cuts to <laughs> cuts the child and heston just like laughing maniacally like i get the beat i get the beat because you have Child and Heston, who's, or I should say George Taylor, who's a, like a realist. Yeah. He immediately is like, yep, we've just spent 2,000 years in, in hibernation. Everything we've loved is gone and, and destroyed and turned to dust. And his two astronauts are a bit more, like, unaccepting of that fact. Um, which I think plays into the sort of time loop stuff that we talk about in a, in a nice way. I like, it's crazy, though, because it's like, what mission do you think you were on? Like- <laughs> What's left to do? Exactly. It's a, at this point, it's just to survive. Yeah. It's the, pra- well, it's the pragmatism of, of Interstellar, right? Like, they know that they're, yeah, they're, yeah. everyone's going to be aging really quickly. and then, But then we see the gravitas of what that means. Whereas this, they're just like, yeah, yeah 2,000 years have passed. Yeah. Well, that, that's it. It's, it's all quite a chilled reaction. Yeah. But one, one is like, yep, that's what it is. And the other two are like, no, surely there's something to go back to. There's no, like, complete... No one's crying and rolling around. Like, oh my god, what's happening? Oh, my family yeah. friends. But to that point, I get that beat because then when they plant the American flag, Charlie Heston's like, what, what? What's that for? Who's this for? Like the American flag, the iconography is completely destroyed. I mean, there's still some American iconography in the last shot of this film, but yeah. um, so I get why he laughs. But it's a very awkward, <laughs> it's a very awkward beat. The way they shoot it and the way he performs it is a little. It's interesting. Like he doesn't but... believe it because he's a proud. No, it's no. like it's like he just committed villainy and is proud of it. That's how he yeah. laughs. <laughs> oh god, I gotta. I think that's probably fair. My favorite. Like, did you uh, have anything zoom. else you'd like to add? Yeah. So I have I have a couple of questions for you, Zeke. Oh yeah, hit me up with them. Well, I'll start with hit me up with them questions, boy. Um, I gotta ask, what's more iconic between these three? Um, I guess references. Okay. You've got apes riding horses. I mean, that's pretty... I mean, yeah. that's pretty dope in this film introduced. And, and the 2010s trilogy like made it even more awesome, somehow, yeah. this idea. The other one is the imagery of the destroyed Statue of Liberty on the beach. 
The other one is, of course, the song Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss from Troy McClure and the Simpsons, <laughs> the Planet of the Apes musical. <laughs> I would actually make an argument that it's that. <laughs> You've got the, the Madhouse line. It's a Madhouse. That's true. That's a great I'd say that's pretty well. okay. No, it, 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 the, the Heston yelling between that one and the You Blew It Up. You, you, I rewatched, after watching the movie, I rewatched yep. the last scene. And the yep. pacing of build and tension building in that scene just through visual language is so good like yeah you don't really know it's the statue of liberty you've seen the spikes at the top yeah from that lot another crash zoom yeah slightly better one that one i think that one's more appropriately timed i think it's a really good (laughs) reveal um the actually courses i think is yeah but um your question i would have to i would probably add a fourth option the madhouse always gets me because it's that's a good line it's a madhouse. That's not the one time anyway, he you would screams. be freaking out. Oh, it's insane. At this point, cause the, the, at this point, the last like thirty minutes of the film, he's just been like running and getting beat up and getting like hosed down and getting shot in the neck. Dude, this is a crazy ass violent movie. If they remade this now to be like more realistic, it's a little like slapsticky. The punches aren't. The punches look like fake movie punches. Yeah. If they redid this now to look more realistic, this would be a horrifyingly violent film. <laughs> so I think Madhouse is very appropriate at this point to, yeah. be, to be calling this thing. I would still go with The Simpsons again. Dr. Okay. Says, Dr. Says, do, do, do. Dr. Says, Dr. Says. That's do, a very cool. Do, do. Thank you. Absolutely. Oh, uh, any other questions stuff. for me, buddy? Um, oh, I guess that was really the only question. I have a couple of dot notes. Yeah, I got beauty. I liked, I don't know if you noticed this, when they're doing the the jury, and you got like the free apes jury, I guess mm-hmm. there. There's the moment when they're they're sort of refusing, um, you know, the doc- the doctor's logic of truth and knowledge, and one of them has their hands in their ears, one of them's covering the mouth, the other's covering their eyes. So the see no hear, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Although that's a really clever little <laughs> mm. thing that I noticed there. And the other one, like I teased you early before about the before midnight reference, I'm convinced that this is an intentional reference Richard Linklater did this as a note to Planet of the Apes so when they the three astronauts climb they they get onto their little raft and they're floating away and the ship's slowly sinking and one of the astronauts watching says going going and then as it sinks he says gone which is exactly how it's performed and edited in Before Midnight when Celine is watching the sunset and she says the same thing going going gone i i was like you this this is real <laughs> this is straight up a planet of the apes reference in before midnight i'm convinced okay i'm convinced and what, what would that now be insinuating in before midnight that i don't know <laughs> would it be what like... an ape <laughs> <laughs> well is it to say that they're no longer in a in a in a land of familiarity and safety Potentially, yeah. Because I mean, that works for both within the realms of Before Midnight. When we've we talked about all three of these films, of course, well, we talked about especially on that episode. We talked about the tonal difference that comes when that sun goes down. Yeah, that is the the midpoint that sort of is when and when the gloves really do come off. Yeah, is yep. when the the sun goes down. We start to see the real truth, the the underbelly of their relationship. Mm. Um, and the ramifications of decisions made over the course of the last 18 years. And 
I mean, in Planet of the Apes, you could argue that the the the, the visual sight of the the ship disappearing is they are now in a foreign land, yeah. unknown territory, and danger is afoot, and the ugly truths of where they are will like surface themselves. Mm. I like it a lot, Zeke. Yes. I like the big brain on Zeke. What was your highlight scene for Planet of the Apes? Oh. It's actually, it's an earlier scene. And okay. I think it's the introduction to the, the, the ape hunters. But there's sort of, uh, uh, um, this is why I bring up sort of the, the racial anagogues and even the, the Django uh, parallels. Mm. Um, there's a scene in which after they kill a collection of humans and yep. they get, and Taylor and his colleague get um, captured, that they're taking photos over the bodies. Yes, I'm glad you remembered and, that. Yeah. Um, it's a weird sort of like uncomfortable scene because mm. obviously you know and they're you hunters, would think, they're bragging, yeah. And even now, as us, um, this is obviously a you know a sentient race that thinks they're they're us above. the Jordan Peele film. Well, uh, no, I meant more like <laughs> as 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 us now looking back on this. Obviously, we can see the the allegories, but even 1968 cinemas, what a bold like statement to make. Yeah. With, with all of the the you want social them to hate right the movements apes, that yeah. happen, yeah, yeah, and at that point, you know, it's like I th- think the allegories are right there. So yeah, yeah. no, Powerful that's a scene. great pickup because I saw that and I didn't I didn't make a note of it, but I'm glad you brought it up because that that probably is one of the most striking like commentaries in the entire film in terms of not just commenting on like um, you know differentiation in class on like a wider scope of animal versus animal human versus ape that kind of, but that very specific idea of taking a hunter taking a photo with like their their dead prey that's a good pickup yeah. you brought it up no worries. what about you Jake mine would have to be as as easy it would be to just say the ending the ending scene I think that's a little too obvious um, I'm probably going to go with the scene where George Taylor is like first communicating with Cornelius we haven't even talked about Cornelius Cornelius and Dr. Zira particularly when he's in the house with them and of course Cornelius doesn't really believe it he talks about ideas of evolution, but he doesn't quite himself believe it or he's, he refuses to believe it. Um, but as part of the sort of the explanation of like the world I come from is real and the science I'm explaining is real, he throws a little paper plane to show what flight actually is because they don't understand this concept yet. Um, and I thought that was a wonderful little scene. Simple, but effective. Yeah, I yeah. really like that. That's a... Uh... Yeah, I mean, their their whole story, Zira and Cornelius' story, mm. definitely takes more the, the realm of when religion was starting to be overtaken by science and practicality and definitely the resistance that was met with concepts like evolution yeah. and flight and thinking of there being other worlds out there. Mm. And, and that's why it's sort of this, this world that Taylor goes to is this weird homogenized uh, collection of, like, medieval religion meets that victorian yeah. uh renaissance evolution of science and um because they specifically it's not just like flights impossible they say what's the point of it because they've been so conditioned with like the forbidden land and all that that there is nothing to explore even though they're, they're both into i guess biology yeah but you're right they're sort of in the stasis where they don't know there's more to be explored because of the the regression of I guess you would call it a religious cult that yeah. Dr. Sayers has sort of kept alive. I don't think he created it, but he, he actively keeps the light going, even in the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think that's very 
astute. No worries. Well, Planet of the Apes is currently out on Disney Plus. Yes, it is. I always forget Fox. I always forget the Fox stuff's on there. Yes. But speaking good. of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Oh, it's a pretty chill week, I would say. You got Netflix Hustle, which is a down in his luck basketball scout, played by none other than Adam Sandler. Discover an extraordinary talent. I think this is meant to be serious. This is like oh. a serious. It's not like a Adam Sandler comedy per se. Um, so I'm I'm interested in that. As opposed to Hustle, you got Hustlers, which is coming to Stan, as well as the Florida Project. We love that film, mm-hmm. and the Australian film Go. On Disney Plus, you have the premiere episode of Miss Marvel, which sees Camilla Khan, a Muslim American teenager and a mega fan of all superheroes, and in particular Captain Marvel, turn into a superhero herself. I think I know she was like popular in the comics, and then she was in the Avengers video game that came out a couple of years ago. Actually, yes, look at that, I have it. Marvel's Avengers for PS5, there which is go. still well, it's not in shrink wrap, but I haven't played it. This is actually the first time I'm opening it right now. But um, I think she was sort of... Well, that's her on the cover. So she's sort of been popularized the last couple of years. Now she's going to run Disney Plus show. Uh, over on Binge, you've got shows like Barry getting... I, it's It says Barry season three. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that's a weekly drop, though. So that might be like the second to last episode or whatever the deal is. Uh, you've got season nine of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. The season, si- there, the season seven finale, excuse me, of Fear the Walking Dead. And the, I believe, the series finale for The Staircase. I don't know if The Staircase is a miniseries or season one of a show. Yes. Um, but like I said, I've seen glimpses of it now and then. It looks like a great show. So um, I'm actually keen to sit down and actually watch the whole thing from start to finish. Um, and I did mention Us, the Jordan Peele film, a few minutes ago. Way back in episode, I believe, 12, it was you, me, Jack, and Chloe. We all discussed the film. But before we talked we about Us, we talked about a trailer to a terrifyingly terrible-looking film called Little. If you mm, recall this film... I do remember. That film is coming to binge this week, Zeke. Boy. Is that a drink to cringe? Oh, I think that is. I think that really is. <laughs> it could be. Uh, coming to Paramount Plus as well is the 75th Annual Tony Awards, which is, of course, for, like, Broadway uh, productions. I think that's live. They're either streaming it live or it drops, like, immediately as it airs. Oh, there you go. Um, so that's actually, like, literally very recent up-to-date Tony Awards. Cool. Um, so if you have Paramount Plus, there's that. Uh, coming to cinemas, you have the new Jurassic World film, which is returning of old and new characters alike in the conclusion to both the Park and World franchises. So, of course, you've seen the, the amalgamation of its cast, like Chris Pratt, uh, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum. you excited for this at all? <laughs> Long actually, pregnant no, pause. No, I... I I think the problem is I, I've only seen, you know, we've talked about Jurassic Park on the show and... Um, a little bit. I don't think we've actually done Jurassic Park, the film, on the show. Oh, did, did we do the other two? No, we didn't do the other two, though. No, no. I mean, that was the like world, Blue Velvet world. days. We <laughs> talked about Jurassic um, World. Well, I've only seen the second Jurassic World. I never saw the first one with Chris Pratt. It's too I, I can't say I'm excited. Will, okay. I, will I go see it? Probably. Sure. Um, I've only got to get through what two other films because um, I've watched one mm. and the two new ones so I've only got to watch two and three do you even need to see two and three what Jurassic Park two and three yeah mate I have no idea I have so, no idea there we go it's probably the original and then the new trilogy that's probably what they're yeah doing. I would say those five there's five right that you have to watch and I've done three already so there you go I've only got quick two. math 
Two to five minus three equals two. Yeah. So <laughs> now nah, I can't say I was uh, um, super enthused. Sure. I, I can't say the same. I think our family might be seeing it for gold class because I think we got gold class tickets for Mother's Day. So mm-hmm. we've been trying to find the right film for that. It's not going to be Top Gun because um, not everyone in the family is a huge Tom Cruise fan per se. Um, like I said, I saw it twice the other week, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more Tom gunned out, if you will. Um, but it's probably going to be between this Jurassic World film um, or the new Buzz Lightyear film. Oh. That could be a good one. That comes could out be. next week, not quite this week. Which I'm, I'm excited. You know, it's the first Pixar film in like three years to actually come to theaters. That is pretty exciting. I'm, I'm lucky excited about that. We'll talk about it next week. Of yes. Course. Also coming to cinemas this week is A Hero, which is a 2021 Iranian uh, drama that sees a man in prison because of the debt he cannot uh, repay. And things go as planned when he tries to convince his creditor to withdraw his complaint against the payment of part of the sum. That is the write-up. Sounds like a boring write-up, but I'm hearing it's an excellent film. You should look into the legal disputes for this film because they are fascinating. I heard about this a few months ago, but there's basically a lawsuit, an ongoing lawsuit that the director, um, Asghar Fahadi, ripped this off from one of his students. So he had a student direct a documentary about the real-life events, and there's a legal lawsuit going on now that he stole this idea and turned it into his own dramatic film. How does that work? Because it's only a documentary. Yeah, I don't know. What is that? If it's a documentary about something that happened in real life... I know there were, like, disclosures signed. Like I think he made her sign something that she's now saying she she was under pressure to sign. Something about maybe a non-disclosure agreement mm-hmm. to take the idea. I have no idea. Because you're right. In theory, you have one filmmaker make a documentary about an event, and then you have another filmmaker making a dramatized version of it. So on paper, that yeah, sounds okay. Yeah, isn't the only person that would have to give a permission would be the subject of right. both? I, just, I, I guess because there's an interpersonal relationship there... I don't know. I was actually talking to Stephen the other day about this friend of the show. We're talking about different schools that have different copyright rights of the films mm. that are made at those schools. I think Murdoch, for example, where we studied, I think they technically own the films that we've made under their units, but I also don't think they care enough to do anything about it if we post it anywhere or start to profit from it or anything like that. But I think there are other schools with hard limits of like a two-year ownership before the director can just post it anywhere. There's weird rules like that, so maybe there's something like that in there. But I recommend people look it up because it was very intriguing. And it's being like appraised the film. Um, I think the film itself is getting yeah critical praise. Like I think it's well made. I think the director is like the main star himself. I actually think the director's he's got a pretty good track record. From I don't think I've seen any of his other films. Um, but yeah, it'd, it'd be worth to look it up. Um, man, this is a long section. <laughs> Also coming to cinemas this week, yeah, Benediction, uh, which is a biographical film that follows the story of Siegfried Sassum, a famed British poet who was sent to the psychiatric facility for his anti-war stance during World War One. And finally, I talked about a little film last week called Little Tornadoes, which is a film about an Australian father who meets a new immigrant. I talked mm-hmm. about it last week, uh, but this Wednesday the 8th, uh, they're doing a Q&A screening at Luna Leaderville with the director Aaron Wilson himself, so... Um, just throwing it out there for anyone who maybe saw the film and wants to be part of the Q&A or thinks this would be a cool opportunity. That's out there. You've got a couple of days to jump on it. So, uh, yeah. But otherwise, that is everything that's coming to streaming and cinemas this week. Very exciting. Well, it is time for us to move into our 1950s for the countdown through the decade. So close. So close, Jake. I know. Wow. 
We had two films going up against each other. It was a bit of a whitewash this week, Jake. Yeah, I think this might be the biggest victory of the year so far. What are we watching? Poll 18-4. to four. So uh, the winner, the victorious winner, of course, is an Alfred Hitchcock film. You can't go wrong with Hitchcock in the 50s. We are watching North by Northwest. <laughs> I'm an advertising man, not a red herring. I've got a job, a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives, and several bartenders dependent upon me. And I don't intend to disappoint them all by getting myself slightly killed. Cary Grant becomes a secret agent against his will. Propelled at gunpoint onto the highest level of international intrigue and framed for murder. Cary Grant, running for his life, searching for a man who doesn't exist, and a secret nobody knows, and finding a blonde who has all the answers. Hello there. Tell me, why are you so good to me? Shall I climb up and tell you why? At breakneck speed, they race together toward the excitement that lies dead ahead, north by northwest. How do I know you aren't a murderer? You don't. Advertising man Roger Thornhill is mistaken for a spy, triggering a deadly cross-country chase. Um, so the film it beat out was Otto Primage's Anatomy of a Murder, um, which I praised about God a few months ago now, mm-hmm. I reckon. But um, I've never seen North by Northwest. Uh, have you seen North by Northwest? Nope. Oh, there you go. Perfect. We get some new Hitchcock under our belts. We talked about Rear Window. I think in last year's decades countdown or countdown for the decades. Yes. So um, look yes. at that, keeping the we tradition might have to alive. Turn to YouTube to watch it. No, well I. Oh no, I don't. I don't own it. I own the birds on 4K. There you go. But um, so I don't. We don't have to turn to YouTube. For we it? might have to turn to YouTube. Oh, I see. I see. You can rent I'll, it off YouTube. I'll find it. I'll buy it. <laughs> Why not? Ask for it for my birthday. Which again, yes. everyone, is this Friday. Wish me a happy birthday when we post the poll this week. For the 1940s film, say, Jake, happy birthday, you lovely bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Star Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. Happy birthday, Jake. Thank and we'll you. catch you next week with <laughs> North by Northwest.